0: That's one of the frustrations of the film. I don't think we get to know her as well as we should psychologically. And I had the same response. There would be these relatively tight close-ups of her, like the knowing nod, the, you know, the slight smile, whatever, and I thought, well, what is she thinking? What's going on here? And what became, and this is where on a technical level, I would fault the film. The strategy seems like a wise one, you know, focus on significant details, the shoes, the feet, whatever, with, with, you know, the smoking, you know, close-up of a cigarette. But then when you go to a close-up of the face and she just smiles and kind of looks off to the side, I never felt like I was inside the head as much as I wanted to be. Something's lacking there.
1: Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver.
0: And I'm Mike Giuliano.
1: And today we're going to talk about Jules and Golda, starting with Jules. So Mike, I'm going to start off by saying one of the ways I look at any movie that I see is to wait till the next day and see what I think about it. And it's very important to me in terms of liking a new movie if I haven't felt like I've seen this movie before. And I did think this was original in terms of I don't feel like I've seen this movie before. So how about you, Mike? What was your initial reaction?
0: Well, I feel like I've seen it before, but, but in a favorable sense. I mean, I actually did like it and it, it prompted me to think about what I call that parking lot moment where, you know, if you're actually going to a movie theater and you see it, you might enjoy it or not, but then once you hit the parking lot, sometimes, this particularly happens on really hot summer days when it's boiling on the parking lot, and you walk inside. what did I just see? You know, like, like if it flies out of your mind immediately, not a good sign, right? And, mm-hmm. and so the thing is, like, if you start thinking about it on the drive home, and as always with my students, if we watch a film one, one week and talk about it as a group, the next, sometimes they complain like we've forgotten it already, but, but if they have remembered it, hopefully it has somehow germinated, it, and hopefully not festered, and, and they've been thinking about this through the week, and I think that's good, actually, because we're talking about an analytical process, right, even for silly films, what do you make of it? And it's good sometimes a little bit of time pass, let it marinate that way. So uh, Jules, I saw quite a while ago, and so it's been marinating for quite a while. Uh, it's like, it's like hard cider at this point. It's it, it, you know it's pretty potent. So here's the deal, though. Uh, the, the reason I say it, it felt very familiar to me, unlike Marie's responses, I think with alien movies, you have two basic categories. But When the aliens touch down, before they even say hello or kill you or anything, as soon as they touch down, you sort of decide as an audience member, is this going to be a hostile alien movie or a friendly one? Now, let's look at the spectrum. At the hostile end, I think an extreme example, of course, would be alien. They don't want to meet you. And if they do meet you, they do want to meet you because they can kill you, right? They can consume you somehow. That's at the, the hostile end. At the friendly end of the spectrum, you have the sentimental ones, the cute ones. Uh, let's call that the ET end of the spectrum. Jules is very much at the ET end of the spectrum. And what I did like about it, though, and this is where it was somewhat original. So, Maria, I, I, I like half agree with you here. Where it was somewhat original was the fact that usually with an E.T. type movie, it's little kids encountering aliens and becoming friends. And then should they tell their parents how will the adults react, all that? It's at that level. And this is a PG-13 movie, but uh, this is the geriatric version of it. This involves a senior citizen and his elderly friends and how they respond to the alien. Now, the casting in this film is quite interesting. Um, Years ago, I actually met Ben Kingsley, and this was not too long after Gandhi. So that was like how he was branded. That was the association. You know, that's the mixed blessing of having a trademark role like that as people think of you for that role. But enough years have gone by that I thought it was actually very astute casting. He's really good in this role. He plays an elderly man who has memory problems. He's starting to slip that way. And so when this alien spacecraft lands in his backyard, you know, you, you got to wonder like, well, is he imagining this? Or, you know, and even if he really knows it and believes it, who would believe him, right? It's like, oh, dad, you know, he's having he's having a, a senior dad moment thinking he sees aliens back there. So, um, you know, at heart, and it very much is about heart, it, it's really about how he bonds with the alien. And then in terms of his circle of friends and acquaintances, who he tells, who he doesn't, how they handle it. So it's very much a character study in that respect. And it's extremely gentle. One could argue even too gentle a film. What was your take on it?
1: It was that gentle aspect of it that I really liked about it, and you struck on something that it's starring older characters rather than little kids. But at the same time, older folks at the point in their life when their family and friends are starting to treat them like kids again because they're old. And you know, uh, if you tell somebody that you know a, a alien spaceship crash landed in your backyard, you know they're gonna look at you like you know uh, maybe we need to call the guys with the With the white suits and the butterfly nets. You're not like a a member of society that anybody's going to take seriously. And that actually works to Ben Kingsley's advantage because when he realizes that actually he doesn't want anybody to know because he's now feeling sort of protective of the alien, it's a nice, well, I guess I'm always grateful when they sort of buck the trend of making every movie an action movie with 25 year olds. I just felt it's just such a breath of fresh air in terms of audience and I mean, I don't know that this would appeal to our younger students, Mike, but I think when they get older, they'll like it better. Do you think that's an ageist thing to say?
0: (laughs) I'll let you you say that. (laughs) I'll keep a poker face. But no, um, you make a very good point there about the Ben Kingsley character, who's named Milton, has an adult daughter. And she really does treat it the way you indicate it. It's like, oh, dad, you know, it's like now, you know, the tables are turned, right? She's looking after the father from a, a slight remove. So she's not there all the time. One thing that struck me as curious, and I'm not completely satisfied with the film on this count. When you have that, this kind of premise, you know, the spaceship lands, aliens in your backyard, you really can establish your own rules, right? You know, as to, you know, what the alien can and can't do, blah, blah, blah. But at a certain point, there's a, a kind of plausibility factor that kicks in. You know, you can have that kind of like extreme or even like totally Plausible premise. But then I always say you need that logical development. And where I think it falters a bit is in this respect. And again, I give it a lot of latitude creatively, but the alien not only is friendly, but the thing is, this alien can't speak much less English, but understands English. So okay, wherever, he, wherever it came from, you know, those are the rules of the game there. I'll, I'll go with that. But the thing that, that I never quite accepted entirely is it's, it's an actual spaceship in the backyard and it's not a small one it's a good sized spaceship now he, he, the man does have a good sized yard but still he's in a neighborhood right so it seems like the neighbors somehow are oblivious for the most part I thought, wouldn't somebody now some some federal investigators will come looking and that's a different part of the story but but just the, the basic premise if a spaceship landed in your backyard how long do you think it would be how many days before one of your neighbors came walking over or called the police or something here it's never really an issue but but whenever the camera goes out to the yard it's like my gosh that's a big spaceship and here's the alien standing on the grass somebody walking a dog would see it for sure uh, <laughs> how do you react to that because it seems to me like you can have like a really extreme premise this way but you need some degree of, of plausibility in the development and here i think the film has maybe a little more latitude that it needs some way of explaining or justifying like let the guy live way out in the woods or something right i mean there are ways you could handle this but did that um i don't want to say bother you so much as something that was sort of there with you as you were watching it every time they went out into the yard
1: Well, yes and no. I did think it was plausible that an older man could be completely ignored as unimportant by everybody around him. So, even though, like you said, you know, a dog, someone walking their dog past the property would see what is that giant thing in the backyard? I just, I feel like it had something to say about invisibility when you're older, like that, that, you know, nothing important ever happens to you. So, why pay attention? By the same token, the government knows that there's been some sort of Event And so they're trying desperately to find it. And I'm thinking in this day and age, with all the surveillance and the satellites and everything, the idea that they couldn't find this large spaceship in somebody's backyard, that to me seems ludicrous
0: you know where I want to really thank you so much for saying that because there are scenes where the federal agents they must as well be in a movie from like 50 years earlier right they they come up to the house, they knock on your front door right that kind of mm-hmm. a thing but they don't think well gee well, I'm knocking at the front door why don't you look around the side yard uh-huh. yeah. it, 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 <laughs> I mean that was like really Bob that's actually one of the things that did bother me about it and, and then directly to your point think about nowadays how easily they would have with like particularly like drone technology right something up there would spot something mm-hmm. in in the backyard it's just not there on the table it's not there on the lawn if you will and that's something that I think in the scripting phase, they could have somehow finessed. They'd find some way, like here, here's a, for instance, number one, you could have them live way out in the country. There's woods, this and that. Number two, depending on the size of the spaceship, maybe they could push it into the garage or something. You know, I mean, (laughs) I mean, you know what I'm getting at? There are like ways in which you could have one or two scenes that would explain it so that viewers like me weren't bothered by it because that's the point where, well, that's the point where the cuteness tends to turn... Rancid, But what I mean there is like, oh, come on now. You know, it's like pushing a little too far with this. Uh, And and I think that actually spoils the film a bit because your point is so well taken. Thematically, the film is very much about the isolation, particularly the elderly, and and of connection, the connection you want to have with your your remaining friends and with some outer space alien that does understand you and that is really nice to you and enjoys eating apples that you give it and all these sweet things. Thematically, the film works really well at that level. But then when it has all those implausibilities, as, as you and I have just discussing, I think that chips away at it. So by by the second half of the film, for me, it was getting, when I say rancid, I mean, in the sense of like treacly, like the sentiment is just pushing a little too hard. And, and it's just, you know, it's too much of a greeting card at a certain point.
1: I like greeting card kind of movies, So maybe I have a higher tolerance for that. I do have some um, notes about creating the alien who, by the way, never says a word. I, and I think that was sort of interesting how They bonded with this creature who feels like he's completely understanding everything that they're saying and taking it in and seeming empathetic without saying a word, but they used no CGI to create the alien. And the prosthetic makeup department and his team created a full body creature made up of 11 individual prosthetics attached to the actress playing the alien. And they had to recreate it every day. Nothing could be reused. So it's a whole lot of, you know, going through four hours each time of you know, putting these prosthetics together and they had hoped to only have to put the actor in uh, the makeup 12 to 15 times, but it ended up being 30. So just imagine getting into all that makeup to look, you know, believable as this alien 30 times and you don't have any lines. You just, uh, that's a really tough thing to do, I think.
0: Well, think about it from this perspective. The actor has a name, Jade Kwan. And I'm wondering, like at, during award season, does he get an award for acting or for prosthetics? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it really, he's so totally covered by this, right? You wouldn't, you, like as you're watching, you realize it's a human being in a suit. It's a variation on the old movies in the 50s. Well, that's a guy in a gorilla suit, or that's, that's an outer space alien in a cardboard suit, you know, that kind of thing. But it's very sophisticated, actually, as to how it's handled. Totally convincing, but you do have an awareness that there's a person walking around in that. But to reinforce the point we've both been making, it is to the film's credit, I think, that the film that the creature, whatever you want to call it, doesn't speak or grunt or do anything. Because it's, such, it's actually very effective nonverbal communication. The creature is taking in what they say, and actually does have all sorts of extrasensory powers, and I won't spoil anything in the story, but it can sense things that are going on, and it becomes very protective that way. And I think that's good, because imagine it if it flipped the scenario, imagine this creature could not only understand English, but... Speak it or, or somehow speak something. That could be so hokey, so fast, right? <laughs> Unless you handle that just right, it's gonna be dorky and, and just dumb, right? <laughs> so it's better off just to have it as this mute presence. The other thing though that, that I found, again, I had mixed feelings about this. I think the creature should remain push, come to shove, somewhat enigmatic. I don't want the full backstory about its planet, you know, and all that. Mm-hmm. But what did strike me as weird was this. They become friendly with it, they're out on the lawn, they mostly have a picnic blanket, they're out on the lawn with it and so on, very friendly, but they never like have the curiosity really like to to uh, for most of the movie like to venture into the ship you would think like for the first mm-hmm. hour or so of the film you wouldn't you think like the door is open and the welcome mat is basically there either the creature would go like this and invite them inside I'm, I'm talking about the early scenes in the film or they just out of curiosity would sneak out to the backyard i'm gonna have a look inside there you know how many rooms in this house uh, <laughs> and that's another place where in the film you need more plausibility than the film has if that landed in my backyard, whether I was invited by the creature or just was nosy, don't you think I would I would go out there and like you know, see if the door opens, want to at least look inside? But again, nobody thinks, not just the elderly man, but the, several friends, couple friends get pulled into the, the, the scenario. Somebody you know, is going to sneak out there at two o'clock in the morning want to have a look. I mean, don't you think that's a place where the film, though, it works quite well, could work better?
1: It is, now that you've mentioned it, a really obvious plot hole. I, I kind of thought, that the reason that they did it was because the alien was visiting them. They were not visiting the alien. You're right. I mean, curiosity alone would would insist that you go check it out. If Even, even if you feel like it's rude, maybe just peeking in the windows to see uh, you know what it's like in there. I wanted to mention something that the director, uh, Mark Turtletaub, said, that the alien is a catalyst. It's like a creature that has no voice that allows other people to find their voice. And when they can find their voice, they can find connection mostly how important it is to be a great listener what do you think well about yeah that? that's
0: a really great quote to use marie because because the alien essentially is a sounding board mm-hmm. and it's a good thing we don't learn too much about it because it's the alien actually then becomes a, a bonding agent a catalyst to bring these other characters together and I, I like that about the film
1: now there's a question about what to call him and you know is it a man or a woman that isn't even not really explored because it's not important. So the movie's called Jules because Ben Kingsley decides he looks like a Jewels. But, you know, Jane Curtin's character thinks he looks like a Gary. What did you think, Mike? Jules or Gary?
0: Well, that's one of the things in the film that, that makes us smile. And, and, and I'm happy that it's not given a name that's too cutesy. You know, because that would be like like it becomes like a stuffed toy at that point, right? You know, and and I I kind of and actually much of the enjoyment in the film is the banter between the elderly Mm -hmm. friends and and to your very point, what should we call him? You know, I'm I'm saying him because you know Jules is the name given, but we really don't know. It's it's sort of like you know one of these, almost like a a, you know plastic doll kind of figure. Like, well, do you really want to know? And how would you handle Mm -hmm. such matters? And and I really (laughs) don't want to. I don't I don't want to know more on an anatomical level. You know, I'm I'm happy just that it's some alien from elsewhere. But I'll use the, the masculine. Case because they seem to treat Jules like like, he, like he's male, but again, that's the ambiguity that works to the film's advantage. Because in a sci-fi film, you can sometimes spoil things by what I call over-explaining. Because uh, you know, if you start explaining things in a way, and people at a certain point will go, "Oh, brother!" You know, it's just like like I'd be better off not having all this blather. Just it's an alien and it's going to destroy the planet. And we have to fight it, whatever. That's the hostile alien. Here it's the friendly one, and if ET wants to give you a candy bar or something, you know, I mean, you just you know, you, you get you go with the, with the, the cutesy flow of it there Uh, so less knowledge is actually ironically a, a good thing in a case like this
1: now do you think that having the older characters be seen as starting to lose it like the daughter of ben kingsley's character is clearly concerned about his aging and dementia is there a case to be made that none of this actually happened this is just something that happened in his mind
0: well, that's a, you see, that's an interesting question to ask, because within the film, if you take the daughter's perspective, she might well wonder. We might well wonder, in early scenes at least, you know, are these fantasized sequences. But uh, it doesn't take too long in the film for us all to realize, no, this, this alien's really out there, and it's a matter of how he's going to respond. So that's never really an active question for the audience, for the viewer. It will be an active question for some of the other characters, it's true. And that's an important distinction. So, uh, you know, I, I can't fault the daughter for wondering what's up with Dad. Kind of, kind of questions. But I never had any questions. Now, a very different film would have, I, th- I think, more actively pursued that. I'm not saying this film should, but a different kind of film would have really raised like scene by scene. Is this real or is this in his mind? And you could do that quite readily. Like, you know, the guy could be in a, in a lazy boy chair, sort of thinking back on his life. And you could easily slide in and out of memories, dreams, whatever. And then he pops open awake and then looks out the window and there's a spacecraft. Is it really there? You could do that quite readily, but that becomes a different film. That would become a film that actually would be about borderline dementia, right? As to what's real, what's not, and so on. This film, I think to its credit, raises that as a consideration for the characters but it's not going to have that kind of medical focus whatsoever and, and i didn't worry about that after all because he's he's more or less there mentally if you know what i mean he's he's pretty mm-hmm. much there but he has his senior moments and 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 you know but i never to your direct question never thought is this like a huge senior moment <laughs> thinking there's an alien <laughs> in the backyard
1: <laughs> so before we move on to golda what do you think about director mike turtletaub in terms of this versus his other movies
0: Well, one nice thing about this film, it is really pitched at an older demographic. I'll I'll be playing a a mature demographic, seasoned moviegoers. And (laughs) and actually, when you think about audiences now, you know, producers think in terms of demographically, you know, who's going to go see this? We've had so many alien movies aimed at kids. It makes sense. Well, why not take that? And this is to your opening observation that there is some originality here. Let's take the same kind of story and have it pitched at older characters meaning an older audience that's also to your point earlier Would younger viewers want to watch it maybe yes maybe no but but definitely you know this this film knows its audience People who are at that age or approaching it who, who would think along these lines. And, and so, by way of like thematic connections, sure, an older viewer is going to be much more likely to connect to it. Because, you know, let, let's be like really harsh in our assessment. Like, are government officials going to like this movie? No, because they look no. like jerks in the movie, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, you, can, you there's certain characters you can put on a roster. Like, no, those people wouldn't like the movie, but it, it knows who the audience is. And to your directorial point, I think the leisurely pacing is an advantage here because. The best scenes oftentimes are just banter in the guy's living room, right? It's just these people going back. And some of it directly relates to this creature. Some of it is just the way people have a long history together and the stuff they talk about. And that's interesting. It's just hanging out with them.
1: Well, let's move on to Golda, which is another triumph of makeup. I think actually both of these movies probably have some nomination for best makeup coming up in the Academy Awards. But this is three and a half hours of makeup for Helen Mirren to turn her into Golda Meir. And, you know, just to be frank, I will go see anything with Helen Mirren in it, even if she just stood there reading the ingredients off of a bottle of ibuprofen. I think she does a wonderful job trying to embody Golda Meir, but there was something about this movie that I felt just stalled, maybe because it doesn't have a lot of action sequences of the Yom Kippur War. It's a lot of smoke-filled rooms, and man, is there a lot of smoking. But it felt like a documentary that wasn't quite funded enough or something but what did you think, Mike?
0: I strongly share your reaction. There's something, it's a disappointing film. There's something muted about it. There's yes. it's, it's lost in a haze of cigarette smoke. <laughs> and I know she was chain smoking, but to uh, go back to your opening observation, I mean, I once met Helen Mirren at a film festival. I share your admiration for her. She's a terrific actress, and I'll tell you a terrific person, just, you know, A plus, right, right down the line. But this is not an ideal role for her. With all the prosthetics, and all the command of her cigarettes, and all the command of her orthopedic shoes, all, all, all that she masters. And, and, and yet, I think she's miscast here. You can only do so much with prosthetics, frankly. Colmaier had a stocky frame. She had a stocky build. Helen Mirren has an angular build there are scenes in the film where it's obvious that she has the wrong body type, if you will. Prosthetics can only do so much for that. She's just not physically right for it. Uh, And it reminds me that this isn't the first time this has been an issue, but where a really good actor can pull it off. She does pull it off. I mean, I give her credit for it. It's not a very compelling film, but she does pull it off in a basic way. It reminds me of many years ago, near the very end of her career, Ingrid Bergman made a TV movie called A Woman Called Golda, 1982. Now, if you were thinking about this heading into it, like if you were going to cast a movie about... You know, Goldemeyer, would you cast Helen Mirren? My answer is a quick no. But going back like 40 years, somebody said, Well, we're going to make a TV movie about Goldemeyer. Would you cast Ingrid Bergman? I'd say, No, you kidding? Are you crazy? And so, again, a good actor can do a lot with it. But when you look at the actual physical build, and that includes the face, they're not right for for this part. And to your other early point, in terms of the cigarette smoke, I think the movie gets lost in prosthetics. It really, and it needs to do that to try to transform her. Also, in atmospherics, that swirl of cigarette smoke. Uh, this this movie, you know, in, in fact, the rating for this film was PG-13, and in the in the tagline, it actually says, "For I think this is an exact quote: pervasive smoking. That's why it got a PG-13: pervasive smoking." And it's true. I would give it an R rating for too much smoking and the. Fact of course that the all joking aside that the character has cancer i mean you know it's it's a sort of scenario we can all think of friends and relatives in this situation they have a cancer diagnosis they have the treatment and what do they do they light up another cigarette you know and it's that kind of a thing but what really dooms the film i think is that it has so much of that kind of atmosphere that it's trying to be a quasi documentary but it doesn't go all out with the documentary treatment uh, it's in a kind of no man's land be, between a, a purely fictional treatment and, and a real like definite quasi-documentary treatment. It's somewhere in a kind of hazy in between. And honestly, after a while, I watched every minute of it, but the scenes just went by one after the other. And even with what should be the dramatic focal point, the Yom Kippur War, because it's a vicious conflict, she has to resign, you know, her position because of her response to the war. All that should be dramatic, but somehow I'm just watching those scenes like I'm checking a box. Okay, now she's before some commission testifying. Mm -hmm. Now this, now that, now she lights up another cigarette. I was, uh, you know, wanting to, like, get out of the room like a too much smoke in it. But, but it seems to me that there's something lacking here. Let me ask you, let me throw the question back to you. There is definitely something lacking here. I keep using the word muted or somehow just not fully developed. It's just sort of there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it seems tensionless like it is checking off the boxes, making sure that you've seen her in all of these different scenes. You know, you're in the smoke filled room where it happens. It's even smoking in the hospital. Now, here's something I wanted to ask you, though, specifically. I did notice that the camera work would focus on her, you know, thick ankles or sensible shoes, like these close-ups of little details. And then they would, after she would have a scene where she would say something, she would exchange this meaningful look with her assistant. And then, you know, you get the reaction shot. And they did it several times. And I wondered if there was supposed to be something more we were supposed to get out of those, you know, knowing looks.
0: That's one of the frustrations of the film. I don't think we get to know her as well as we should psychologically. And I had the same response. There would be these relatively tight close-ups of her, like the knowing nod, the, you know the slight smile whatever and i thought well what is she thinking what's going on here and what became and this is where on a technical level i would fault the film the strategy seems like a wise one you know focus on significant details the shoes the feet whatever with, with, you know the smoking you know close-up of a cigarette but then when you go to a close-up of the face and she just smiles and kind of looks off to the side i never felt like i was inside the head as much as i wanted to be something's lacking there and that's at the level of scripting i i knew uh, uh, very little about i mean i knew enough about goldmeyer heading into the film i didn't really learn much about her watching the film. It was checking boxes in terms of things I basically knew about her already, and I was I, honestly I was bored by it after a while, and I didn't think that would be my response. Uh, you know, I, I was ha- I was happy to have it end just because you know I, I was coughing from the smoke.
1: <laughs> now I did think it was kind of exciting when Lee Schreiber would appear on screen as Kissinger. I thought those were the scenes that were really pretty compelling. What, you ones? know what's
0: funny was, I, I actually met him at one of the early editions of the Maryland Film Festival. He came to Baltimore for the festival and he's a really talented actor and he's played all, all kinds of roles, but I never would have predicted that further <laughs> into his career, he'd play Henry Kissinger, right? <laughs> and you know what? Even though it's like easy to laugh at that, he's really good as Henry Kissinger. He's really convincing. And that scene came alive. Now you could say it's almost like a Saturday Night Live skit or something. And now mm-hmm. it's Henry Kissinger, it's Lee Schreiber. But, but you know what? All, all joking aside on that, those few minutes on the screen, I kind of perked up in the seat. I thought this is interesting casting that actually works. And the banter between the two of them actually had some life to it. It was actually vigorous in a way. The film needed more scenes like that, whatever to, to give it some juice. It, mm-hmm. And uh, there were only a few moments. There's also another actor playing Moshe Diane. There are a few moments, and again, at least there, because we have recognizable historical figures, and that does automatically kind of spark our interest a bit. But also that the casting is good there. And moreover, um, they're not buried under prosthetic. They, they somehow managed to, to, to do the role and, and fit into it there. So yeah, that's to the credit of the film. There, there's some good secondary casting in it.
1: Now, you know, I was just thinking about what we were just talking about, about where it just felt like something was missing. And, and something occurs to me that I feel is maybe a double-edged sword. Had they included more about her personal life, where we saw every scene we see her in, she's always the politician. But I mean, she was there was a woman in there, and we don't see vulnerable moments of her in her private life enough to give you a sense of her as a just a, a person. I mean, yes, there's the emotional toll of thinking of what is happening to her countrymen and the way the Yom Kippur war was handled, all of that. It's she gets those scenes, but you don't see like a different, softer side. And the reason I say it's a double-edged sword is I feel like if they had done it that way, there would have been all this criticism of diminishing her role on the political stage by making it about who she was outside of politics. And I'm not sure how you walk that line. I think it would have made her a more interesting character, but I don't know that people wouldn't have criticized that approach as well. What do you think? That's a
0: really good observation. It's a pendulum swing. If, if you swing the pendulum more to the side you're suggesting, it's like, not only was she a politician, she was a woman, she was a family member, all this, this and that. And it could swing too far that way. And it's like, uh, you know, enough of this. But I think it could use some of that. I think a, a, a keener sense of her background, of her family life. And the film is too insular. It's too claustrophobic. It needs to open up. And I think a few scenes definitely placed in, in the film could do that. Here she is at home. She takes off those orthopedic shoes, kicks up her feet, talks to whatever family member is there. And then actually in the midst of a mundane conversation, she could say things that actually do offer insight into her political stance and and into where the the country Israel is at that point. There are ways to do that. You don't have to have like a harsh division between here's a political scene, here's a domestic scene. No, it's what I call the kitchen table scene. You've had a tough day at the office. You sit down at the table and you say, well, you wouldn't believe what that Henry Kissinger said to me today. (laughs) You know what I
1: mean? (laughs) It really needs some. Yeah. And then her husband says, oh, God, do we have to talk about Henry Kissinger every day at dinner? <laughs> <laughs> that would be hard all to right. do without, without really knowing what all of her relationships were like. And it, and it might have seemed diminishing of, you know, trying too much to make, like, there wasn't enough to say about her politically. You have to delve into her background. But that does bring us to the end of this episode, Mike, unless you have a final word.
0: No, I'm just saying I, the film has a hundred minute running time. I think another 10 or 15 minutes of domestic scenes would have really yes. enhanced it.
1: I agree. I agree. Too bad they didn't ask us. But that brings us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other episodes at ATMHCCPodbean.com. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Media Podcast.